Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. And a welcome to the Nervous Podcast number 379. All right, there are really, really only a few tickets left uh, for our Nervous Podcast Live at San Diego Comic-Con on July 20th. That's the Saturday. Um... We well, I announced on Twitter that uh, Matt Smith is going to be our guest. Matt Smith, in his final appearance at Comic Con as the Doctor, so it'll be fun and maybe a little weepy, but mostly fun. So uh, go to nerdist.com/calendar right now to snatch up one of the last couple of tickets. Uh, it'll be a full show, and if you're going to San Diego Comic Con, uh, we're going to post soon on all the Nerdist goings on at nerdist.com. So. Uh, Go there, go to Instagram Nerdist, Facebook Nerdist, Twitter Nerdist, Google Plus Nerdist. Uh, I really stuck with the theme, didn't I? But I would like to thank uh, Stamps.com for sponsoring this episode of the Nerdist Podcast. Going to the post office is uh, basically like eating a bag of nails. Uh, You wonder the entire time why you're doing it. So don't. Use Stamps.com. You can print out official U.S. postage using your own computer, your printer. You're going to get the exact postage that you need. You're going to put it on your letter or package, and it's going to look professional. And People are going to get that and go, why is he so fancy? He printed out the exact postage. This was a $1.31's worth of postage. Normally, you'd have to wait in line at the post office and get to the front, and then give you a book of stamps, and then you'd waste a bunch of money, and then you'd uh, shout to the heavens, why, as a crane shot uh, lifted out, echoed through your voice, uh, went out into space, and went to the edge of the galaxy where your voice traveled uh, over a couple of decades. Right now, there's promo code, enter NERDIST. Uh, There's a no-risk trial, $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale, and $55 of free postage. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in NERDIST. Head to Stamps.com. Enter the promo code NERDIST. The following podcast, uh, it's a flying solo podcast. Wait, don't turn it off. Uh, I don't know where Matt and Jonah were. You know, sometimes the one-on-ones, I'm like, oh, am I going to be able to carry this without the sister wives there uh, making comments and keeping the ball in the air? But uh, Charlie's a fascinating guy. Dare I say, a delightful chap. And uh, (laughs) we learned a lot about how to deter burglars. Uh, We learned uh, some acting advice that he got from Marlon Brando. And uh, also... Uh, just uh, Sons of Anarchy stuff. Uh, he plays Jackson, Sons of Anarchy, and then also Pacific Rim, which is in theaters July 12th, and you should absolutely go see because it's Guillermo's movie. And uh, to fight monsters, we built monsters. 
But there are no monsters uh, outwardly in this episode of the podcast. Um, well, maybe we're huggable monsters. Is that safe to say? Is it safe to say? Can Charlie and I be huggable monsters? Chloe's giving me the thumbs up. That means you're giving me the thumbs up because she's the voice of the audience, right? Why would you just tell me to fuck myself? Oh, that's right. You're the voice of the audience. <laughs> Here we go. The Nerdist Podcast number 379 with Charlie Hunnam. Now entering Nerdist.com. Charlie Hunnam to the podcast. Um, I'm sorry, there are normally two other guys here, but they're both out of town. Where are they? Matt is in Chicago, I think. Uh, I don't know where Jonah is. There's a comedy festival in Chicago right now. Okay. Uh, and so Matt's there, and I don't, I'm not. I'm not sure where Jonah is. So it's just going to be one-on-one dude time. All right. For you have some... you done a podcast before? I have not. This is your first podcast. I, it is. All right. We're going to have to address the fact that. Um, Essentially, there is a secondary British invasion, which is British invasion of, uh, of American characters. But I really feel like it'd be weird if there were the reverse. Like if a bunch of Americans were going over and, and, and playing British characters. Do you think that would, that would stand? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's a question that I've been asked a lot. It seems that the British actor has to be um, you know, flexible with the voice. There's so many regional dialects in England, so yeah. to, to act in England is often requires doing different accents, which is not as required of American accents, so we kind of grow up doing a lot of accent work, yeah. which makes it e- obviously easier to come over here and transition into it, but it does seem to be a one-way, one-way street at the moment. <laughs> there are a few people. I mean, Renee Zellweger did a pretty good job. I she mean, did, yeah. Actually, she did do a pretty good job. Um, who else? Uh, what's his name? Oh, Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp does a pretty good job. He does a pretty good one, but he's doing this more crazy. Like he's doing chimney sweep. Yeah, he's basically he's basically doing Dickensian chimney sweep. I know he was. I know it was Johnny like, Depp can do whatever he wants. He can do it. He can do whatever he wants. But you know what he can't do? Just play Johnny Depp. Maybe. Maybe it's been a while. As an actor, do you do you like playing a guy that you feel like? It, I, I feel like, and I'm not an actor, but I feel like it's be really hard just to play a guy. Just a regular guy. What does that even mean? What is just a guy without a weird quirk? Sure. I mean, you know, I think that that's that's my bread and butter. I mean, I feel like that's what I can do best. But I come from an area that is just regular guys. You know, it's um, I come from Newcastle upon Tyne, which is a, a very depressed working class city in the north of England, and that's all there is there. There's really not you know a huge artist community or like a you know, geek community or, you know, a cool guy or rockers. It's just a lot of working class dudes. And it's it's almost like the, the, a place that time forgot. It seems like that type of old school man doesn't really exist as much anymore. And it doesn't even really exist in Newcastle anymore. But when I was growing up, that's all there was. There were coal miners and shipbuilders 
and dudes that work the door, and you know, there was not a lot of kind of frilliness up there. Did the hipsters take it over? I'm sorry, what are they called? Dickheads in England, right? <laughs> Did the dickheads take it over? Not so much the dickheads, but all of the industry closed down. The shipbuilding yards closed down, all the coal mines closed down. And actually, in an odd turn, the universities flourished. So it's a huge university oh, town wow. now. That's really cool. Was it? It must have been. Well, is it? So, how's a guy in a working class town? from a working class family go, hey, I think I want to do something artistic and creative. And also, how does that go over? Well, there was, I guess there was one tiny, tiny little pocket of, um, of the bohemia of, of, of Newcastle in the area that I later moved to. My mom's um, mother, my grandmother, was um, a fine artist, and she really was one of the most successful artists in Newcastle. She would paint all of the portraits of the mares and, you know, that kind of thing. And so uh, there was a little artistic blood. But, you know, my mom had always had aspirations to be a ballet dancer and had gone all the way through ballet school when she was a kid. And at the, um, you know, at 17, 18, she found boys and alcohol and uh, <laughs> met my father, who was a real rascal son of a bitch. And he, uh, you know, and, and he kind of swept her off her feet and she let that dream go and have and had children. So I grew up with her influence. Um, but for the most part, everyone thought I was crazy. You know, I, I made this declaration that I was going to be an actor at a very young age. And I don't think anyone ever really took it too seriously. And then when I got to you know my adult years and was hell-bent on pursuing the dream you know I think everybody just you know allowed me to go and and with the with the feeling that I would go and you know fail um you know in my own right and then come back and do something more sensible and you know knock on wood there's time yet for that to happen but (laughs) it's been going okay so far yeah it's not uh it's almost a I mean maybe if you worked in a coal mine you wouldn't think this was true but I think it's it's actually harder to pursue something like this just because of the rejection rate and the amount of you know like the the, the, there's a you know there is a solid chance that you know like in a coal mine you can just go and work in a coal mine you know what the job is like mine the coal put it in the thing send it up mine the coal but you know but with acting there's not really a right way there's not really an a to b it's there are a million ways in and a million ways it can happen and a million ways that it can express itself it's so true and 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 many times i've been asked by kind of younger aspiring people that have seen my work you know for advice of how to break into this industry or how i got my first break and i just i've I've nothing to really say i've no advice because it's such an intangible kind of you know mystical thing in a way to me it was about there's a henry david thoreau said a wonderful thing um you know thoreau yes he said uh i have learned this at least from my experiment that if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life that he has imagined he will meet with success unexpected in common hours and to me that's about the best advice i can give just if it if it's in your soul and it's 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 the thing that you feel is going to make your life make sense and you know stave away a little of the existential crisis then Mm -hmm. go for it and and make it your everything you know your every waking hour and every waking thought and you know sleep on it and eat it and you know make it everything your life's about and I think that the universe hopefully will respond and kind of help you along a way, uh, you know, along the way. But the way you arrive there 
I think will be, you know, will be your own journey and as unlikely as you could have ever imagined. Yeah, because it is, um, uh, I mean, it, the idea of living with it and sleeping with it and in every waking moment, if, if you're passionate about it, you don't, you just do that. Like there's not, you don't really try to do that. It's almost no. like you can't stop from doing that. You almost and sometimes you wish you didn't, you wish you could <laughs> stop. I mean, there were a million times when I, I mean, I had a brutal decade of this where I, I, there was a couple of periods where I didn't work or make a single dollar for over two years. And, you know, and there's the realities of life, you know, you got to go see the doctor and it's expensive and you have to eat and you have to travel and you have to get, you know, go to auditions and everything. And I was out here for a long period of time without a work visa where I was oh, just wow. trying to, you know, I, I would have a work visa to work in Hollywood, but that doesn't permit me to work on a regular job. So I couldn't even get a job waiting <laughs> tables or anything like that. I could only get acting work. And so, uh, you know, so it was, it was very grim and there's, a, you know, some long, dark nights where I thought, man, I've, you know, I wish I didn't feel so compelled to do this because I could just go and live a m more ordinary life and actually find some happiness. That's you know? really better. You, you, you're, only allowed, you're only legally allowed to work in one of the hardest jobs <laughs> to get right. possible. But I think, you know, I, I, I love that Thoreau quote. I, I, I always tell people... I mean, I, I think good advice that you can give people is not so much, well, you do A and then you do B and then C happens. It's just like, look, um, if you love it, you'll figure it out. Right. You'll just figure it out. Because I think once you start down the path, once you make a decision and once you kind of feel your molecules align, you go, this is what I'm going to do. And that's it. Then as you start down that path, weirdly, I don't know if it's you become more aware or 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 it's just the sort of the butterfly wing effect, but answers really do start to kind of reveal themselves along the way that you hadn't really seen before. So sure. it is, it is, it is. I think the good advice is like, make the decision and then just figure it out. Right, right. Um, I, you, uh, uh, but also I think that there's, I do think that there's a, there's a kind of a mystical quality to this. You know, the, the people that I've seen succeed and really, and really, not only succeed in, 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 in achieving their goals, but succeed in finding some happiness in achieving those goals are the ones that have a, a real desire to be storytellers. I mean, specifically with acting, but, uh, you know, it, yeah. I think it applies to all, all walks of life. But the people that have like a, a, a kind of an integrity and a, a real passion for the thing rather than the trappings of the thing. Yeah. You know, you know, if you know, people say to me sometimes, you know, how can I become famous? And I say, well, you know, there's a million ways to become famous. Make not a all sex of them, tape. Yeah, not all of them positive. That's all you, you know want. I mean? Make a fucking sex tape. Right, sure. You <laughs> it's know, the saddest. Rob a few banks. You know, there's, yeah. there's many ways to become famous. If you want to become an actor and tell stories, then, you know, maybe we can have a conversation. Yeah, because there are a lot of people who are famous and broke and have no substance, you right. know, and that's not really... I, I Honestly, I would not be surprised if some weird school i used to joke that it was going to be like usc film school but but the more i think about it someone's going to make a fucking there's going to be a class in sex tape production because it's like these people these fucking these, <laughs> you know like someone makes a sex tape and it's like oh they got a reality show and now they're famous now they're in fucking magazines they're like really right is this, is this the path we should be telling uh is this, is this really what kids should be learning like this is what you should do to you know like the idea of being noticed and the idea of being famous do you feel like that's a detriment to the craft of acting, or is it like, yeah, it's not a big deal? I, I think maybe it kind of gets in the way sometimes. Well, it certainly gets in the way of life. I mean, I have no interest in fame at all. I, I, 
I I feel like I act to, like I mentioned before, to keep the massive perpetual existential crisis that I'm always in the brink of away. Because <laughs> I grew up um, really loving film and putting my putting it was the place that I went to escape the life and the you know brutal reality or just the boring minutiae of day-to-day life you know back in the day when I was working you know jobs that I wasn't interested in stuff film was the thing that gave my life some real excitement and worth and so the idea of being able to work in that I felt at the end of it all I would have feel like you know okay I really did something with my life that was it, it maybe not important in the greatest scheme of the world but at least important to me like I spent my time doing something that I was passionate about. Do you find when you're young and you see something that you really kind of think like it, there's you see it in a way that most people don't see it where you go oh I see what you're doing I totally I get it I totally like you just kind of see into the fabric of it. Does that make any sense? Sure. I used to see that when I would watch stand-up comedy. I was like, oh my God, I totally, I feel like I understand this on a molecular level. Was that the same with you for film? It was. It was, absolutely. You know, and and that grew the older I got. Um, The genesis of it was, I remember when I was about five or six, maybe even seven, I saw The Scarlet Pimpernel. Uh And I was already interested in acting and film and stuff. But I said to my mom, like, oh, this is amazing. This guy is such a badass. He can sword fight and he can ride horses and you know he gets to kiss the girl and all that but so how does that work do they just find a guy who rides horses and knows how to sword fight and my mom said I I don't really know but I would imagine it's more they find the actor that's has the right energy or the right you know essence for the for the role and then teach them how to do that and that kind of captured my imagination as a kid I thought what a cool job that you know you get to go and make films but in the process you get to ride horses and learn how to sword fight (laughs) and that's still a big part of the process for me I mean I love to I love you know I love making movies but almost the the more fun part of it is the three months before where you get to learn the skill set that that's required to play the part did you I'm sure you've been asked this question a million times did you have to learn how to ride before Sons of Anarchy um I hadn't ridden for a long time I rode some dirt bikes and some quad bikes and you know stuff like that when I was a kid but I'd never ridden street bikes uh, so yeah, I mean, I had to do a little bit of a, a crash course to remind it, myself. I've never ridden one. To me, it just looks like I'm going to spend the whole time trying to figure out how to keep this massive metal horse from falling over and from it falling on top of me. No, it's not the case. It's just like riding a bike. Once you get some inertia going, you know, then and, you're all and good. have the balance, you know, it's it's good. But if you lose your balance, then you're fucked. Then you're totally fucked. Yeah. <laughs> That's why you got to wear leather. Exactly. You need the second skin. Um, do, do people expect how, how do people treat you in public do they is it you know do, do you get the they treat you like you're your character or they you know they want to talk about motorcycles or what are they or are they pretty pretty normal uh they're pretty normal i mean you know it's it's um you know most people just you know very normal the one thing that i've thought was interesting and i've gotten used to it now was that you know, kind of tough dudes like thugs and like gang member type yeah. of dudes really respond to me. And so <laughs> a couple of times to begin with, I was with my girlfriend once and there were these two monster dudes with tattoos on their faces and on their necks. And they were looking at me and looking at me. And normally the type of thought process that goes with that is, oh, fuck, I'm about to get robbed. Right. Which is what I was thinking. And then they walked up. I said, all right, here we go. And then they walked up and they said, Hey, bro, we we just want to say how much we admire you, you know, and, and we want to say thank you. 
And I said, oh, thank you for what? And they said, you make the hood safe on Tuesday nights. Because <laughs> they're in watching the show. Because everyone's in watching Sons of Anarchy. <laughs> and so, uh, so that's, that was really It's cool. a good thing that you allowed them to talk before you. were like, here's my wallet. Like, sure. Like, What's wrong? Right. Oh, I was uh, just <laughs> joking. I was, it was a joke. Um, you were on Undeclared, weren't you? I was. That was a fucking great show. Oh, thank you. It was another one of those shows like Freaks and Geeks where it's like, ah, oh, snuffed out too soon. Yep, absolutely. You know, Judd Apatow is such a talented dude, but I think he he is not the most collaborative with the with the guys upstairs. You know, he want he's got a vision and his own voice that he's that's very clear to him and yeah. he doesn't want it interfered with and there were all sorts of conversations when we were doing Undeclared about well you know the ratings aren't great to begin with and maybe we could put on a laugh track and maybe we could do oh. these type of things and Judd just said no fucking way yeah. and so uh, and so we were cancelled <laughs> <laughs> well, you that's know what? how that went I mean I gotta say good for him for not you know compromising and making something that he wasn't pr- I mean and obviously he's carved out this very I think he's doing just fine for himself film. now. I mean, yeah. they, he almost should call them and go, "Thank you for being dicks," because everything's worked out fine now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm very excited for Pac Rim. Um, that I mean, I adore Guillermo, and that movie looks in, insane. Yeah, Guillermo is a badass, and I I haven't seen the final cut yet, but I saw. Um, you know, a, a 75% done version of it, and it's it's pretty awesome. <laughs> it's He created such an interesting, textured, original world that, you know, it, there's, there's definitely monsters fighting robots, but the world that he created around it that's dark and nuanced and, you know, just got so many details is what I found so exciting about it. I mean, he really, you, you step into this whole creation of Guillermo's and and uh, and he shot it like a film noir. It's very dark and moody, and you know these type of movies are usually very kind of bright and colorful. Yeah. And he kind of went for a film noir comic book movie, which is super cool. Do you want to? Well, I think it's I think it's the you know people who like the who've always sort of liked the kaiju movies. I think have been just waiting for the right combination of big budget like really really cool looking one right and i think you know there's always a oh it's almost oh this one didn't quite pull it off but i think i think if anyone can pull it off i think guillermo is probably the guy that could pull it off sure absolutely i mean i think so too because you know the thing is that guillermo is a master filmmaker so he would have done an amazing job anyway, but he's also one of the like 0.1% of filmmakers that would tackle this type of material that actually adores the material itself. It's not just a way to tell us a big, glossy story and inhabit a world with monsters and robots. I mean, this is a guy who goes to sleep dreaming about monsters <laughs> and robots and growing, you know, getting up in the middle of the night to draw sketches and stuff. So it's just such a personal film. And yeah. I think so seldom these type of films on this type of scale actually, you know, feel personal to the filmmaker and you really feel his voice and his love of this in the film. I know you're a writer. Do you also want to direct... Like, when you're around someone like Guillermo, is that an infectious energy where you go, shit, I think I might want to direct as well? You know, it's so difficult being an actor to get through the day and you know you have all of these i mean i go to work with all of these ideas of what i want to try to achieve that day and 
you know, sometimes you have a toothache and, you know, sometimes you had a fight with your girlfriend and you try to leave all of that behind and just execute as clearly and as well the vision that you had for the work for the day as possible. And for me, that just fills the day. Um, you know, it's always very exciting to work with guys like that. It, it, the idea of it's very exciting, but the the actual process of it is much more kind of practical. And with a guy like Guillermo, it that translates to just a feeling of security you know like I, I don't have to worry about about any of the decisions that are being made because i know he's gonna the decision ultimately is going to be right because yeah. he's a genius you know um and so you know the it's you know but then when i go and see the film afterwards i, I get a little of that you know but um i guess that's the sign of a good director is that someone who can you can watch something and go i think Oh, I really want to do that now. Like just seeing because you can see because you see the possibility of it. Yeah. But in practical application, <laughs> it's obviously really hard. That's why there aren't a million Guillermo's in the world. There's sure. just one Guillermo. I hoped I hope that, you know, with with Disney doing this whole new wave of Star Wars films, I hope Guillermo does one of them. I think Guillermo in the Star Wars universe would be Oh my god, incredible. it would be sensational. Yeah. 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 Um, we'll see. We shall see. I, you know I what think I he's do? pretty busy. He's got, I mean, that guy is so prolific and works so hard, but he has got a, a stack of material I'm that sure. he's just waiting to get his hands I should just on. buy, I'm going to buy Disney and then just tell Guillermo <laughs> to do a stuff. It's that. Do I it. should just go do that. Do you think I should do that? Uh, well, if you're looking for Luke Skywalker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, you'd be, you'd be a good Luke Skywalker. God damn it. Yeah, I think I think you would be a good Luke Skywalker for this for this generation. Sort of a... You know, like Luke after, let's say it's Luke 10 years after he's been training. Right. And he's really kind of honed, you know, and he's really become kind of a badass. Holy shit. You would be fucking great. Oh, we got to make this happen. Let's we gotta, do it. I don't know how we're going to make this happen. <laughs> I, let's say, call I, I, just, I just say that because I get really excited. Guillermo, hunt him. Skywalker, make it happen. And then I'll just hang up and I'll be like, who the fuck just got me? Hey, run. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> he looks great. He's lost like a hundred pounds or something. Yeah, he's he looks doing, incredible. He's doing great. Um, when you were uh, when you were growing up, and you said you know you 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 spent all this time watching movies. What type of movies besides Scarlet Pimperno? Like what other types of movies really grabbed you? Uh, I was I I, I was um, I guess the, my favorite was American Crime. Uh, I, obviously, Scorsese was mm-hmm. uh, was a huge guy. Um, Abel Ferreira movies I loved, and you know the kind of darker American crime noir films. Yeah. Did you uh, you do you you write though too, right? You do, yeah. You do you do write screenplays? Yes, yes, yes. I've, so uh, is this the is this the direction that you think you want to tackle? Yes. I mean, I would love somewhere down the line to I've got a film that I want to uh, that I want to direct that is in my mind I haven't written the screenplay yet because I think we're a few years away from being at that point uh, I've got a couple of other movies that I'm working on now and I had I, I, I wrote my first script six years ago and it was about Vlad the Impaler mm-hmm. and it's a kind of you know a Braveheart-esque um attempt to tell the true story of Vlad the Impaler. So without the supernatural aspect, just the guy? Well, yes, absolutely. Without the supernatural aspect, but of course, I mean, you know, weaving some of that mythology in, which is very easy. I mean, the the real man was the inspiration for Bram Stoker's Dracula. Sure. So it's, you know, and, and, and that was because of some of the the practical application of of his style of warfare. He was fighting the Ottoman Empire, 
and his standing army was around 30,000 men at its height. And he was fighting the Ottoman army that stood at anywhere from 150 to 200,000. So what he would do was go and attack their camp at night when they were all sleeping, you know. So because of that and because, you know, he understood that, you know, it would be much better if the guys became nocturnal because then they, they're... they're their ease at night, you know, at operating at night would become heightened and their energy would be good at night. So for months before any given attack, they would be training in the woods at night, you know, and there was a lot of different, you know, realities of his life that was effortless to weave the Dracula mythology into it. But the studios ultimately said, we want him drinking blood. So (laughs) I hope that as my career moves forward and... If things continue to go well, I'll, you know, I'll gain enough momentum that we can pull that out of out of the, you know, dusty hole that it's been put into and I can uh, and we can make it at some point. Is there enough literature about like what was the what was the human side of that guy? Like what was he like? I mean, you know, beyond all the I'm going to, you know, I'm going to line the walls with heads. Like what was the what was the human aspect of that guy? Was he a good guy or was he just a warrior or what? You know, he was a fanatic. He his he he grew up in um, Wallachia, which was the uh, southernmost principality of current day Romania, which bordered the Danube. And when the Ottoman Empire came, they they got across the Danube, which is very the the river Danube, which is very very wide there. And they got into his principality, and they basically said to his father, listen, you can remain on the throne with complete autonomy, run the country however you want. At some point, not right now, but at some point, we're going to come back and we're going to take over your, your, your neighbors to the north. And then we'll go back and we'll, you know, we'll secure this area for a little longer. And then eventually we'll go and we'll take over their neighbors to the north. It was like a slow plan that they had for total world domination. And they were very good. The Ottoman... Um, under a son-father duo actually expanded the territories of their empire tenfold during the two of their lifetimes. So, I mean, they were, you know, they were conquerors of the mold of Alexander the Great. Only Alexander created a bigger territory in his lifetime than these two guys did. And what they said was basically, you can, you can, you can stay, you know, king, you can ro- rule however you want, but when we come, you're going to give us your army and you're going to support us and we're going to go north. And he said, wow, that seems like a pretty good deal because everybody, you know, he wasn't particularly friendly with his neighbors at that point. All of those principalities were at, co- at con- constant war with each other. And so he said, um, okay, that sounds great. And the sultan said, whoa, whoa, hold on. As security on this deal, I'm going to take your two youngest sons into my custody and they will be treat, you know, they will be taught and, and treat as their, um, you know, their standing would suggest they'll be tread as princes and we'll, we'll educate them and, and look after them and I'll, I'll treat them like my own sons. But, uh, you know, the problem was Vlad at that point was 12 years old already. And by 12 years old, back at that, in, at that time, you were ostensibly a man and had a very well-rounded idea of who he was and what his duty was, and he wasn't going to bow down to anybody. But his younger brother, Radu, was only six at the time and had a much, was much more malleable. So they, got to, they, got, they went back um, um, to, I think, 
I forget now. It's been so long. I think it was Alexandria that they were living in at that point. And they went to the castle and, and you know, all hell broke loose. And Vlad ended up slashing uh, with a knife. He got a knife and he cut the Sultan's son's face open. And this, the son, who then became a Sultan later on, carried the scar from Vlad his whole life. And so they, they separated the two boys. And Vlad basically got imprisoned. And Radu got, you know, got uh, turned to Islam and raised as a son and was very, very loyal to the Ottoman. Cut to 15 years later, under the treaty that they had made, the Wallachia was basically a nation of slaves. And the, the, that Vlad's father, um, his brother came and killed him. And Vlad heard this and went ballistic and had been literally in a, in a small you know, cell training every day praying to Jesus Christ, you know, was, you know, devoutly Catholic and, and you know, vowed that he was going to go back and, 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 and be with his father and kill the Ottoman. And he escaped from prison and he got in and he didn't just flee. He broke back into the castle and said to Radu, let's go. Our father's been killed. We're going to reclaim our territory and we're going to come back and kill every Ottoman we can, we can see. And Radu refused to go with him. Because at that point, he had been completely indoctrinated into Islam and had decided he was going to stay. He was in love with the sultan's daughter. And so Vlad left, went into the hills of Wallachia, raised a gypsy army, came back, killed his uncle, took back the throne, and thus started a 20-year war between him and the Ottoman, with his brother fighting for the Ottoman. Oh, it's such a great story. It's, I mean, it's epic shit, and, you know, we... The Dracula shit gets in the way of what the actual story is, which is really cool. In. I mean, you know, you I have him... There's a, a scene in the film that I wrote where he, he basically battles his uncle, and, uh, you know, and, and he disarms his uncle, and then his uncle basically says to him, like, only a coward would kill another unarmed man and and Vlad just smiles and throws down his sword and says not if unarmed too and then literally rips his throat out with his teeth <sighs> you know I, I like I, 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 I peppered in enough stuff that you say oh that's where that's that, where that, that came, came from, from. And, you know, and the other thing, and I won't talk too much more about this, but the other thing that was wonderful about Vlad and so fascinating is that his tenure as, as king coincided with the advent of the printing press. And he used that to his advantage, and he really became the first kind of pulp comic book hero. They would print all of this literature that he actually was designed originally against him, but you, he used it as, to his advantage, where the kings of the, of the north would say, we got to do something about this guy. He's so crazy. And they would print these pictures of him impaling people and, and dying oh amongst like, the forest that, of the impale. That's like proto-propaganda. Exactly. And he said, wonderful. Let them think that. And then, you know... And 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 uh, you know and 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 then would would play up to this to uh, to to get as much of it as possible because it struck f- fear into the hearts of his enemies and so those the, these wonderful wood carvings of him at the time, which I think were some of the original ones were of him in this kind of circle of impaled men eating his dinner. And I always felt that that wasn't because he was some beast, but the process of impaling you either impale through the chest which is the much more difficult way. You sure, yeah, it's Impale tough. through the chest <laughs> and, you, and you go <laughs> up. Or the more common way to impale was to insert a shaft at the top of the, um, of the pail up the anus and then slide it horizontally. So pedestrian. And then gravity... <laughs> Boring. <laughs> gravity would do its work. But either way, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> either way, the oh, smell no. of inflammation is, is, was, was horrible, you sure. know? And so if he would eat his dinner 
in a circle of impaled men, it was almost like, you know, it was like, you, you think you're a badass? Look at me, you know? That's almost, that's almost a little Cape Fear. Sure. Right, it's almost a little bit of Cape Fear of like you know, look, look, look what I can take, and it almost, it almost sounds a little bit like it too. Where he's just like stewing and training every day, and right, you know, just wanting to get his revenge. Sure. Um, do you think he did? He, do you think he died satisfied? You know, I think if he had died at his height, he would have been satisfied. Um, Towards the end, his his own people kind of uh, turned against him. You know, it was a very difficult time, and you know he spent twenty years at war, which destroyed the infra- infrastructure of his of his um, country. One of the other uh, strategies of war that he implemented was. Um, one of scorched earth, where he basically taunted the Ottoman, taunted them and taunted them and into pursuing him. And so they came and they had a, a brief little battle and then he retreated into his own country that he knew like the back of his hand. And so they followed him. And as he retreated, he destroyed the infrastructure. He poisoned every well, he burnt every crop, he killed every flock of animals. Shit. And so as they... As they and, it, and he actually he was very lucky because the also was one of the hottest summers um, you know in, in in history back then and so as they um, as they pursued him they got weaker and weaker and weaker because they couldn't nourish themselves and so then they would send a party back to the Danube to get more water and he would he would go around the back of them and that party would disappear and so that every party advanced scouts or people to go back to water that left the main group kept disappearing and disappearing and never being seen on again and they were going through this desolate landscape and every party left the main party disappeared Shit. so you can imagine what that must have done to morale you know and he was he was a you know he was a brilliant practitioner of psychological warfare. Just fucking not just... with people's heads. Just fucking with armies. Yeah. He just fucking, he just fucked with armies. Right. And so, and then they would get absolutely exhausted and then they would find some shade and rest up for three days and on the second night or the third night he would ride through their camp, hacking and slashing, killing as many people. But his strikes usually only lasted ten minutes and then they would be gone. And just as the camp realized they were under attack his army had disappeared back into the forest, you wow. know. So you can imagine. I mean, it's ripe for telling. Do you want to, would you play Vlad? I would love to. Ah, oh, that'd be great. <laughs> that'd be fun. How do you hide the tattoos? Now, when you got the tattoos... These was, are fake. Oh, this is fake. Is this just for Sons of Anarchy? Yeah, this okay. is just them in the they middle They look of good. Flying. Yeah, they're really good. It's a company called Tinsley in, in Los Angeles. They cost a fortune. Because they're kind of... Let me, can I poke it? Yes, Because it, it's sort of... Uh, it's. <laughs> can I poke your tattoos? Because what, what looks really good about it is that it's, it, it does look... Like like faded a bit, like it's a, it's got yeah. a nice age to it. Yeah, it's got a, a little See, bit of a patina. This is what I can get behind. I should just because my girlfriend who is, just has a bunch of tattoos, and every time she gets one, she's like, "This will be the last one for a while," and then a week later, so I'm thinking to get another one here. I'm like, "You're addicted," and she goes, "Yeah, I know. Once you start, you can't stop." I don't think I could commit to one forever, but this I could get behind. I could try it out, see if I like it. Right. I don't know if it would look right on me though, but it looks it looks good. Yeah, I mean, this is a good business to be in. I, I put a fresh one of these on every day, and this tattoo is $35. And it's literally just like a transfer, like you would wear like fake tattoos when you were a kid. You peel off the plastic, put a piece of paper on, wet it down, and peel the paper off, and that's the tattoo. All right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do this. I'm going to try it out. All right. I'm absolutely going to try it out. I'll tell you what, I can send you one of these. Would you, you send get, me one of those? Yeah, you can get the full Jax Teller effect. <laughs> They're going to be like, he, this guy really likes Sons of Anarchy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Unfortunately, you'd have to shave your arm because you can't lay it I have down. a problem with that. <laughs> Over hair, that's why I have one hairy arm and one completely bald. I did, you know, I was, uh, 
I will admit this. I I was shaving my body for a while because I was swimming as part of a workout. Uh-huh, right. And um, in the summer, you know, it's just like hot and gross, and I'm super I'm I'm super hairy underneath. And so uh, I did. I I just I shaved it all off. And there's no way to not feel like a serial killer when you're shaving your body in yeah, the shower. No, it's super psycho. It's, it's like <laughs> this is how Vlad did it. <laughs> right. Sure. <laughs> sure. Do you want to do? Uh, do you, th- is comedy something that appeals to you at all? Or? I've done a little comedy. It's not. It's not my forte. You like it? You know, I. It's fun. In the whole, the whole process of it is so much lighter and you know more fun on set and everyone's joking around and not you know very serious all of the time. But it's just drama is where I feel most much more comfortable. Just more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Drama for me, I don't, I can't at all. I just, I'm like, how are those people so serious? Like, it's such a, comedy's such a defense mechanism. Right. That in a bad situation, it's hard not to, Right. I, like, in a drama, I'd be the guy, like, trying to crack jokes. Right. And then it would just, it would ruin the entire scene. I mean, there is something, of course, you know, very earnest about drama, you know? <laughs> and and, I, and I've, I've, I've heard that from comedy people, that they get on set and it's like, wow, it's, you know, almost feels silly. It's so earnest and serious, you know? But, yeah. But... You know, that's where I feel comfortable. Does, are there ever things that are so intense where you're like, this is, there's no way to not laugh at this? Um, you know, it's, it's because it's so, um, linked to my self worth. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's always like, it's, it's much more, fuck, I hope I can, you know, I hope I can get there. Yeah. You know, it's, it's never like a point of, uh, you know, oh, this is silly. It's like, fuck like get there you know and if you don't then there's you know for me always days and days of self-loathing and think fuck you know you gotta like be more focused and you got you know because it's hard you know the I, I i read these scripts on sons of anarchy sometimes and i just you know kurt i just adore our showrunner and, yeah, and my boss and i just think he's so talented but you know, it's he swings for the fences every episode, and and so I get these scripts, and I think, Christ, how are we going <laughs> to act this? I mean, it's so intense, you know. And I think, all right, Kurt, well, if you think we can do it, I'll give him my best shot. But you know, well, he's an amazing writer, and and he obviously, it's almost like, um, in a way, not just writing the show, but he's almost like a trainer in a way that just is like, okay, you went this far, I'm going to push you five inches past that this time, and then... That's a good analogy. You know, by, the end of a, by the end of a season, it's like, oh, you did five more reps every week, and now look where you are. Right, right. You know, I mean, I've often thought of Sons of Anarchy as a as a real training ground, but I guess never made that further connection that Kurt's the trainer. But he is kind of it's, yeah. It's it's very good. He's he challenges you every week, and if and you know because he I guess he feels like well these they'll probably rise to the challenge, and then you do, and then it's like right. okay, well you got this far. How about this next week? I mean, it's to you know to write a show for five, four, five, six you know seasons is. Uh, I, I just I would just think oh as a showrunner I would just run out of like how do you keep how do you take these characters and then just keep throwing shit at them and how do you make them grow and do they change and yeah. you know do you feel like you've how much do you feel like your character has changed in the past was it five seasons now uh, well not six on your sixth yeah I I know I don't know how he does it frankly I mean like we we discussed I I also you know attempt some writing from time to time and it's it's the hardest part of Hollywood I think you know getting the story and 
creating the world and making it all gel and these make all these characters sound like they have their own voice. I, I truly don't know how he does it week in, week out. I mean, he has a staff of really talented writers, you know, that, that pitch ideas and do first drafts of scripts for him. But he's a total, total control freak. And so he rewrites every single script himself, edits everything himself, obviously acts in the show. Um, so I, I, I really don't know how he does it. He's uh, My hat goes off to him. <laughs> Some people yeah. are just wired that way. Some people are just wired that way. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think he had a very clear idea from the very beginning of where he wanted to get to, you know, in, in terms of the huge, like, the, uh, the big, big general story points in the yeah. arc of the whole thing. So he had, a, like, a blueprint of where he was trying to get to, but, you know... It's uh, it's amazing, and we'll see. I mean, I, I've I've often thought, you know, it's uh, the thing with TV, which is one of the the arts of it, is that you have a finite, a very very specific amount of time. I mean, like these episodes are supposed to come in at forty two and a half minutes. You know, you make movies can come in and you know two hours. Let's cut out twenty minutes. Right. See how that feels. Oh, that didn't work. Let's put ten minutes back in. You know, to 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 be doing it to time that way and. I guess that's a skill that just gets honed, and so a greater extension of that is 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 figuring out how to you know tell your story in exactly seven seasons, thirteen yeah. episodes per season. But I've always said to Kurt that I just want to I trust him completely and just want to see this through to its you know natural, honest conclusion. So if he needs more than we're con- you know contractually we we have uh, we we're contracted to seven seasons, but if he needed more time, I would do another season. Oh, that's cool. I mean, it's hard because I don't know when you when you lead an audience down a certain path, and then you know those characters over you know six years, seven years become a part of someone's routine in their life, and they get to know the characters. It's I, I don't have um, I don't know how anyone ends a show like it's almost it's almost imp- it's almost impossible to have a series a big enough finale. conclusion right yeah because everyone everyone has their personal relationship with the show they right. they have a way that they feel like even if they don't know exactly what it is it should end a certain way and if it doesn't and then those characters are gone right. then they can get really you know like like per, like like hurt sure. personally so sure. i do not envy that job of having to take all these characters and figure out like how do we how do we go out right, from here? Right. And it's been such a big, I mean, aside from just the audience reaction, it's been such a big part of our lives that how to, you know, transition. I mean, we've lived with these characters and Kurt has lived with all of these guys in his head for so long. And I know, you know, when we, every time he has to lose a character, he deeply mourns it. I know, you know, it was very hard for him when we lost to Opie last year. It was hard for all of us, but I know he's kind of deeply mourned the loss of that character. So I've been thinking about that. I'm very good friends with Ryan Hurst, the guy that plays Opie. He's a you know, dear friend of mine. And going through that process of even for him after, you know, five years of leaving the show and going back to life outside of it it's um you know it was a a pretty pretty hard transition for him he wrote this beautiful piece called the last rites of opie winston as a catharsis for himself and there's a piece of it that i just loved so much where he said um you know in desperation like two or three weeks after he'd you know been killed and he had this that every actor carries around a graveyard of characters they, they've brought to life and then had to kill, and that's just part of the gig, and we all accept that. But this, he'd been so close to this guy, and it happened so abruptly before he thought it was going to, that he hadn't had time to really say goodbye, and that 
that he felt like this for the first time in his life, this guy was inside him with unfinished business who wasn't going to rest in peace. And so one night he was on the internet searching Amazon for all of these uh, like character development books. And he said there was 10,000 books on character development and not a chapter in any of them on how to kill the fucker when you were finished, you know? <laughs> oh, he should, I, write, he, should write, he should write the manifesto for how to kill a character. Right? It was, it was, it was a beautiful thing, but it, it kind of struck fear into my heart because I, you know, I, I could really empathize. And I thought, God, this has been such a huge part of my life and, 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 and the greatest creative experience I've had so far that I'm, I'm slightly dreading having to say goodbye to Jax because he really is very deeply inside me at this point. Well, as long as you don't, as long as your character doesn't die... There might be... It would almost be better if he did. So you could just, like, so have I closure. So I could just have a little closure on it. So you that know it's what I mean? not like, oh, he's still out there somewhere. He's right. still out there somewhere. I've talked about this a million times in this podcast until people are sick of hearing it, but I I still feel a weird uh, a weird tiny hole in my... Uh, uh, in my soul for uh, for Deadwood. Oh, you and me both, brother. Just like, oh, they, oh no, what happened? And it came <laughs> after the fact for me because I never saw Deadwood when it was on. And so I kind of went into it. I can only imagine how brutal it must have been for people who were actually watching it while it was airing <laughs> because I watched it all at once in a, like a marathon over four days and just felt such a sense of loss at the end that that story wasn't going to continue. So the people that had it, they were watching it episodically and had it (laughs) torn away from them. They basically, it was a retroactive series finale because they didn't know. Right. And it was just like, so Hearst just gets away? Are you fucking (laughs) kidding me? Like, it was just that, like, oh, come on! Yeah. Uh, Because they just hadn't, they hadn't had a chance to wrap it up yet. I really... I mean, they won't, but I, I, had, I had always hoped that some Deadwood fan would get to a position of power that'd be like, all right, we're making Milch, the movie. You're fucking, you're making the movie, and we're going to wrap this shit up. You're going to do this one last time. But we talked yeah. about it uh, when we had Timothy Oliphant on, and he was like, yeah, you know, it's just, I think it's done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, it's funny. I, I, I see Oliphant a little bit on the on the circuit, because he's that on FX, FX yeah. too. So I, I always ask him about that as well. And uh, Dayton Callie, who played Charlie Potts, yeah. uh, is a really, really good friend of mine. It must have been brutal for them, because they were, you know, that it was, it was, I think, very much experience that we have on Sons is that they've put their heart and soul into it and they, they kind of for them that world became real yeah you just it's every once in a while you know if it's, if you're friends with with Tim you just every once in a while just go up and be like just give me a little Seth Bullock I just, just, just give me a little taste of it so I can just so I can go on right just almost addicted when you're acting um, and you feel like you because I, I don't I'm not 100% sure how this works the only thing that I can compare it to, which is the only thing I always compare everything to, is comedy. Which is when when you do a scene, do you and and it turns out good. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you've done anything, or is the trick? I guess where I'm going with this is sometimes on stage you can be fucking around and feel like you didn't do anything, and then it works, and then you're like. Yeah. But I didn't do anything. And then someone goes, aha, yes, that's right. You didn't, you weren't in your head about it. Right. Do you feel like the same is true of acting? Yes, to a certain degree I do. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think that that is the, 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 the sweet spot you want to get to is, that I always try to get to, is do 
tons and tons of homework and think about it from every different angle and know inside and out where I am and how I'm feeling and how I feel about the guy I'm with and everything and then try to go to work and forget it all and just be in the moment and deep in the back of your mind or in your in your gut or whatever you know all that information and can feed off of it but are not thinking about it and just being completely kind of zen in the moment and, and playing off of the environment as it's as it's kind of living and breathing around you which is very hard to do you know and um and uh well especially when know. they're like take five it's right. like okay i'll get back there i gotta get back there again yeah absolutely but it's uh you know it's i think it's just one of those things that you know i'm sure you have the same experience with the comedy where you just constantly feel like you're moving forward and learning and then you know, you'll hit a phase where you're not hitting it quite yeah. as hard and you think, fuck, what has happened? And then, you know, you recalibrate again. <laughs> exactly. The magic is gone. And then, you know, something else will happen and you'll, you'll hit it again. Yeah, the, the will I ever get it back thing is is a, is a little like, that's a weird little little uh, parasite that chews at the back of your brain sometimes. Sure. And then, but it's, you know, you're like, well, yeah, you just kind of ignore it and you just keep keep doing it anyway. I right. think that's really the... You just ignore it and you keep doing shit anyway, and then you know at a certain point, you, then you start to get comfortable and you go, "Well, I guess it'll probably just be okay," sure. you know. But it's really sure. it's it's hard to get to that point. Yeah, absolutely. Do you I feel know. comfortable yet? Uh you know, I, it, you know, it's project by project is 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 different. Um, you know, and day by day. I mean, I'm more comfortable than I've ever been playing Jacks Teller and Sons. I mean, I feel like I've inhabited that character in a way that I never have before in a way that he's like truly inside me and has affected my life outside of work you know I I was talking to Kurt um, about this the other day and he was actually commenting on how much he felt like I had kind of transformed Jax and Jax had transformed me over this over the arc of of the show so far and 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 I kind of had said something to him, I guess, years ago, where um, where I'd, I guess referenced meeting a character halfway, and uh, and he said, I really feel like you've achieved that. You've kind of met this guy halfway. You've brought a lot of what's good about you to him, and a lot of what's bad, and some of what's good about him <laughs> to you. You know, so uh, <laughs> so uh, you know, we were laughing about that. What are you? I mean, obviously, Jack's doesn't maybe he doesn't think about this either way but do you as charlie how do you see him as good you know do you what like what do you think his alignment is do you see him as good do you see him as tortured do you see him as bad do you see him as like what if you just met him in this like what would you think about him i think you know i think uh it's very interesting with hollywood um i'm sure like a lot of people talk about this but it it gives an actor access into worlds that he'd never ordinarily be allowed into, you know? And and uh, a few times in my career, I've had that experience where I've been welcomed into environments that normally outsiders are, you know, completely kept out of. And, and, and this experience was amazing. I, I got to go um, and hang around with a very, very well-known motorcycle club up in Oakland while I was doing my research. And I was just so struck by the humanity of these guys that, you know, and it reminded me a lot of the dudes that I grew up around. I mean, my dad was like a really tough, tough dude, um, you know, and sometimes a lot of his life on the wrong side of the law. Um, 
and and had the capacity to be incredibly violent when he when his back was against the wall because he was operating in a world where other men used violence as a currency you know that was just an appropriate way to settle problems in the business that my dad was in the scrap metal business first he was in kind of um he was he ran doors and stuff in newcastle uh, and because he was you know very prolific in that world you know he couldn't help but become a little bit involved in protection rackets and so he was involved in that what is running doors running doors uh, like uh, being doorman uh, where because newcastle is such a such a tough tough place you know very depressed and kind of working class and where the men are real men you go out to work a shit job you know f- you know 10 12 hours a day for next to no money and the you know at the weekend everyone goes out and blows okay. off steams actually uh, i think in 2000 or 1999 or something like that national Geogra- geographic did a survey of the 10 best drinking cities for a night out in the world in newcastle was number five oh wow of the best places for a night out so there's hundreds of bars and nightclubs got it, got it, got it. in newcastle and so Basically, you know, my father and some of his the guys that he worked for and then ultimately, you know, who who did it himself was, you know, you'd have a piece of Newcastle territory and a guy would open a new bar and say, OK, you'd say, guy, my dad would go and say to the guy, you know, you know who I am and say yes. And <laughs> it would make the thing, you know, the transition a lot easier. And he said, OK, well, here's the deal. I'm going to give you 15 good boys, you know, they'll keep your place. Because uh, to, to, to go back a step, you know, so these guys are all hard, hard, you know, shipbuilders, coal miners, like dudes who are really tough. And they go out and they blow off a lot of steam and have a lot of drinks. And there's a huge fighting culture there. A lot of like a lot of fights in every bar, every night, every weekend night in Newcastle, particularly back in the day. So you would need 10 to 12 to 16 on, in, a, in a big nightclub doorman to keep everyone straight, you know, and, and so that there wasn't like total riot happened. So my dad would go and say, I'll give you 12 boys that are good as gold that will keep everybody, you know, they're not going to get carried away and start fights, you know, because that's the other thing, you know, doormen can get a little crazy. So but they'll keep order and they'll make sure everyone behaves themselves and, uh, in in return, you'll give me twenty five percent of your profits, non negotiable, every week. You know, and <laughs> you know that was just the way it works, and that's right. protection. You basically protect them, um, and in in but in the way you present it, it could be can you know it could be. Um, um, you know, it could be seen as extortion. <laughs> <laughs> One person might say, you know, different strokes to do. You know, <laughs> it sure would be a shame. Sure, if something was to happen to this pretty bar that you just opened. Right. I'm just, just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Exactly. So, but then my dad. Uh, but then, uh, then uh, cocaine hit Newcastle in the uh, in the late seventies, and that changed the whole game because then drug dealers were wanting to take come in and have a piece of the action to control the bar, and then people started to get shot and hacked up oh, and all shit. sorts of stuff. And my dad just said, "You know what? I'm going to step away." Because my my big brother had been born and he stepped away, but he. So anyway, I don't know how we got on this, but long way around. I, I, I that's right. I, I I had kind of grown up with these type of dudes, and then I was reminded of it when I went up to Oakland. That you know, I think for our nice civilized lives that we live in, people who have a capacity to 
you know, to commit violent acts are seen as kind of monsters, you know, or seen as, you know, um, you know, kind of intellectually inferior or, um, you know, uh, ethically or morally inferior to us good upstanding citizens. Of course, yes. But... We're so much better than everyone. Sure, right? you know, but but um, but the reality is that's all bullshit. You know, it's just it's just the the kind of environment that you've grown up in and the environment that you live in day to day. And and I think that Jax is just a product of environment of his environment. I think he's doing the very best that he could possibly do in the world that he's living in. Uh, actually, before you got here, we were talking about this kid. I when I was up in Oakland. Um, I met this incredible kid whose father was a part of the motorcycle club um, that I was that I was doing research with that had been gracious enough to let me hang out with them. And he was kind of heir apparent to the club. His dad had been in the club for, you know, 30-some years. And he had had every single one of his birthday parties in the Oakland clubhouse. And he was, like, 22 years old when I met him, just like a really good kid and you know, real tough, but, you know, nice and sweet and interested in the world and always, you know, curious about everything and super gregarious, had everyone on the block loved him. And, and, and I got to hang out with him for a few days and he made such a huge impact on me. Just aside from giving me such a clear insight into who Jax Teller would, like the, the real Jax Teller, I just, he had an aura about him. I just was kind of captivated by him. Um, you know, and, you know, such a charismatic guy. And uh, a week after I left Oakland, he got shot dead. Oh, Jesus. And uh, and I wear a bullet in, in Sons of Anarchy, this bullet that I wear. I've worn every single day since the show shot it that I wear for him. And I, you know, that kind of like, I decided it was a real tragedy and it was such a clear, you know, example of what this world was about for me. I mean, not to make it kind of, you know, the, the tiny little silver lining of this tragedy was a, a real wake-up call for me that it's not just all about kind of badass and riding bikes and, and these guys are so sweet, but there is like a very, very real underbelly to it and that's just a part of these guys' lives just like any other part of our lives is. And it just, you know, and it's very difficult for people who don't have any violence in their lives to really understand that that doesn't set people in a whole different category. They're just exactly the same, but that's just an element of their, an added element to their lives. Yeah, I guess if you if you have the luxury of living sort of a sheltered life, which most of us have, it's like, you know, uh, maybe I could catch a cold this week, right. but in that world, it's like, I could get shot this week. Like, I right. could just, you know, like, that's just part of the reality. And that, I, 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 I do want to stress, that actually was just uh, not even necessarily anything to do with being part of a motorcycle club. That was a, a random act of, he got into an argument on a freeway, and it was road rage, and the dude... He, like, guy was, like, kind of talking shit. Actually, a girl was talking shit, and he threw his sandwich at her, and her boyfriend just pulled out a gun and shot him. So it's not even... So I'm sure, you know, the story would have been, like, oh, this biker, this trap, and then it's like, oh, yeah. it wasn't even really about that at all. No, not about that at all. But he was such an amazing guy, and so I, uh, I, I thought, you know... I kind of plan to do this to to a degree anyway, but as a as a as a further kind of gesture towards him, I I base the whole aesthetic of Jacks on him. I wear the same sneakers, exactly the same sneakers he wore, and the same jeans, and like the whole style that I have on the show. Does his family know this? 
Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because um, I, I it's kind of a nice tribute that you that this guy, at least you know, aesthetically or partially, you know, the part part of the soul of this guy gets to live on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I I, I still know a lot of the people that uh, you know very close to him and stuff, and so yeah, they're they're aware of it and and kind of enjoy the fact. Uh, and and it, you know we were talking about this also uh, right before you got here, but uh, I get so much shit for the white sneakers that I wear <laughs> on the show, and it's like it it drives me crazy. It shouldn't drive me crazy because that's one of the things about film that if you go out and do a lot of research and get interesting, you know, make interesting observations and apply it, you can actually show details of a world to people that they wouldn't ordinarily like know or see. And I felt like that to the greater world was like one of the things that I contributed to that character was the aesthetic, which is exactly right for that area. But instead, I have thousands of people always criticizing it saying you know why you wear white sneakers bikers don't wear white like, sneakers fuck you they do this guy argh. and i'm like well go to oakland or you know uh, santa barbara or anywhere up the like southern california coast to all of these big biker communities every single dude you see will be wearing white sneakers guaranteed and then I usually, if I'm in a bad mood, add, well, you don't wear white sneakers, dude, because you're a fucking dentist who rides your bike <laughs> six miles a year. If you're a Southern Cali biker and you ride every single day, you're riding flip-flops, you're riding shorts, you're wearing sneakers, whatever you want, whatever you're wearing, you know? Yeah. It's like kind of just the dorks that like will put on biker boots and leathers and a, like a full-face helmet and, you know, and they should be riding like that because they only ride, you know, 60 miles a year. So, you know, they're probably going to have an accident. But if you ride all day, every day, you, you know, ride, you wear whatever you want. That's just your transportation. That's right. Like, that's just, that's part, just, that's just yeah. part of your day. Uh, I have a weird question, which you don't have to answer if you don't feel like it, but you, the story about your dad is really interesting and just, you know, where he came and just sort of questionably, you know, is this ethically right or is that, that but he's a survivor. Like, mm-hmm. what do you feel like you took from him and are there parts that you took that sort of freak you out? Um, I, I mean, I... Uh... What I took for him, the most positive, I think, is the fact that I can, you know, go and inhabit these type of, like, kind of old school men characters with, at least in my understanding of it and my approach to it, for me, some degree of authenticity, you know? It's hard. Hollywood's, you know, still obsessed with kind of hard guys and tough guys and heroes and the kind of guy that's going to stand up against the bad guy and knock him out if, you know, if he hurt, you know, if he's like threatening the girl. But so few people are actually, you know, growing up in their lives exposed to dudes that are like that anymore. You know what I mean? And so growing up with a man like that, I felt like, you know, I I at least understand the psychology, if not, you know, if I... but. I honestly even have a little bit of that in me. I mean, I've, you know, my dad always told me, my brother, you know, there's nothing any man can do that you can't do to him. And if he hits you, just get a, a bigger stick and hit him back, you know? Oh, <laughs> and so, um, and so kind of had already, I'd like a little bit always had that mentality. Um, and, and, and hate like bullies, you know, I, I got broken into a little while ago and, you know, the dude was huge. He's probably, you know, six foot three and 240 pounds. And I just like got so fucking mad that this guy and a little bit scared, but more so mad that this guy was 
breaking into my house at three o'clock in the morning. My girlfriend was there. And what was he going to hurt her? He was going to hurt me. So I went fucking crazy on the dude. And, you know, he was, you know, begging for his life. What? Um, you know, I got in a machete and I said, dude, I will. <laughs> I, I had him on the ground. I was like, dude, I will straight cut you into pieces, bro. Uh, because I just, you know, I think how fucking dare you Was come that, into my house. Did you feel like your dad for a second? I did. I surprised myself because, you know, you always think these things through. Like, oh, what would happen if a dude, you know, I, I, I always think these. And I feel most vulnerable when I'm in my shower. For some reason, I, I think about this stuff a lot. I don't know why I'm maybe a little crazy. But I always think, like, what would happen in this situation? What would happen in that situation? And I always feel so vulnerable vulnerable when I'm in the shower. I can't help but thinking, man, if I'm in the shower, if someone broke in now, I'd be fucked. Not only would I be naked right. and wet, but like I'm in this, like, this glass box, box yeah. that like, yeah. how would I protect myself? Um, you know, but you never know in the heat of the moment how it's going to go. But but uh, I just absolutely lost it. And, and luckily he, you know, back down um you are very lucky you are incredibly lucky yeah because <laughs> if he you know he had he had a gun it would have been a real problem you know was but, it the kind of thing where is it <laughs> it's almost like that weird jason Bourne moment where you're like where did that come from i mean were you were you just afterwards were you well i i i'd been broken into once before about eight years ago and ever since then i've been kind of conscious of it and i was there also that was actually through the day though and uh and I saw I've, I've kind of a long, thin house, and I saw the guy walking along the side of the house, and I was like, fuck, that's a big dude in my backyard. And I had one of those one-piece garage doors, and he'd bent down at the bottom and, like, bent the whole garage door in half. Jesus. And just, like, walked underneath it. He's this really kind of stocky big dude. And, uh, and so I saw him. And at that point, I only had, like, one thing in the house. I had a baseball bat in my bedroom. So I had to sprint through the house but kind of like on the stealth mode, on the download, because I didn't want him to see me. So I kind of like, you know, got through the house and got the baseball bat and then went out. I have French doors in my bedroom. I went out the French doors and met him like kind of like face to face because he was coming around the corner. And I just like held the bat and I was like, we got business, motherfucker. And he, <laughs> <laughs> and he, and he, he wasn't really scared. He just kind of looked and shook his head and then like kind of sauntered and I was so mad I was like walk faster motherfucker and he didn't he continued to walk his own sweet pace out of the garage and I was fucking so mad about it I love that like, he left but you were like but that's you shouldn't leave you should fucking run yeah run motherfucker I'm giving you my toughest look right now so ever since then, I'd always been a bit weary. So I make sure I have you know weapons in every okay, ha in sure. every room. That would explain the machete. And so what happened was I was in like a like a pool house thing, and my cat was on my knee, and he jumped off the knee and kind of stealth mode out. And he like always hears stuff. He's a little bit skittish, but then I could just tell from his reaction. He looked out the. So I'm in like a pool house, sitting in a chair. I was reading my lines the next day, and he just like, and I could see from his reaction because he saw something and looked at it for a second, and then moved his head as though he was watching something move, and then like bolted out, and like I kind of like froze for a second. I was like, oh fuck, there's actually someone out there, and then I heard another noise. I was like, man, there really is someone out there. And then all I'd left the French doors to the bedroom where my girlfriend was asleep were open. And he and then by the time I got up, he had walked past the door. I didn't look in to see where I, that I was there. And he was walking towards the French doors to get in the house where my girlfriend was sleeping. So I just grabbed the machete and I kept it low. 
like behind me because I didn't want to like right away because you know I, if he had a weapon I didn't want him to know that sure. I had a weapon so I could get the jump on him and uh, and he I turned around I was like oh I can't <laughs> oh my god this is this is your dad in bars basically yeah. like keeping people from and he and he turned around and he kind of like puffed up and then I showed him the machete and that took the wind right out of his sail and and then I thought, fuck, I, I wish I had a bat, because if I have to hit him with this machete, it's going to suck. Yeah. You can't, like, half hit someone with a machete. No, you got to follow through on that. You're doing damage. I mean, like a gonna, banana leaf. You just got to whip. You're going to cut an arm off, or it's going to ha- <laughs> like, it was, I, so I was thinking, and I was thinking, can I, like, turn it sideways and, like, slap him with it? But that was just going <laughs> to piss just him a, off. Give me a second to figure this out. I have to figure out how I strike you with this weapon. So I thought, I'm going to just go for it. And so I, I did, like, a dummy hit on him because he was like still kind of looking aggressive so I did a dummy hit and then he realized that I was actually willing to hit him with this thing and then he like broke but he had a he had a fucking blanket I mean a towel oh to punch through a window I yeah. thought, is he is he concealing a weapon? Because, you know, at the heat of the moment, you don't know what the hell's going on. But I, then my buddy was like, no, I'll have been to break the window quietly. See, your dad trained you well. You have that in your dad because that's part of your DNA. Whereas um, my my father was afraid of confrontation. And so I feel like, you know, what if that happened to me, it'd be like, and Hardwick's last words were, do we have business, motherfucker? And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, I would try to pull that off. And never, there's something about, like, I think... I think there there must be something authentically about you that you inherited from your father that in that mode someone realizes maybe it's a chemical or something right. or if someone realizes like uh yeah I think this guy's actually probably going to kill me if I if I if I don't back down. Right. Was it um and I and I figure in the, in in thinking these things through I figure you know you hear so many horror stories I'd almost rather kill the guy in the heat of the moment and then deal with the thousands of hours of therapy after than have to deal with the reality of not protecting my girlfriend or protecting my family sure. in that heat of the moment, you know? Sure. But it's a horrible conundrum to have to... Was it weirdly satisfying in a weird way, though? Like when he crumbled. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, course. as someone who was bullied as a kid, I hear those stories and I'm like, fuck yeah. It's like there's this really great video of these guys. I think it's in London, actually. Um, and uh, and they're they're basically like bullying these these ladies. And then actually, no, they're dudes in drag. They're dudes in drag. And these these just fucking lunkheads are bullying them. And what you find out is that they're essentially like UFC fighters. They're just fucking around. <laughs> and they beat them. I mean, it was just wham! And then, the, and then they go down. And part of me is like, you know what? Violence does not solve violence. But the other part of me is like, fuck yeah! Like, just because I was, you know, like, kind of tortured and afraid when sure, I was a kid. Sure. So it really... No, I- it really, and I think a lot of people listening to this podcast probably feel the same way, and maybe some of them are more evolved than I am, but it's really hard not to feel kind of satisfied when you hear a story like that. No, absolutely. No, I mean, I, you know, I was, I was kind of scrappy and kind of rough and tumble when I was a kid, but also I, I moved from one place to another and got horribly bullied for years. And that was a part of me deciding, fuck it, I am getting out of here. Like, this mentality of this place is just never going to work for me, and it's always going to be an extension of this feeling and so that was the kind of thing that 
drove me further inside myself and and made me determined that I was going <laughs> to come and fulfill my is, dreams, you so know. It's so funny to hear this like it, because I moved a lot too and I had the same problem but my escape was I'll just go in the computer lab. <laughs> I'll just play video games and go to chess club. Like I didn't I didn't meet it head on. I just sort of like, oh, their bullies are over there. I'll just go this way uh, into the computer lab and then I'll be fine. Right. Uh, that that was my way of dealing with it. Do you uh is this weird like that, that hour flew by. That was that just oh, fucking wow. flew by. It really did. Holy shit. Do you have a good do you have a as we're sort of like gliding this bird in for a landing, do, do you have a good Perlman story? I I love Perlman stories. I love Ron Perlman stories. You know, it's funny actually when you were um when you were asking me um earlier about do you know when it works? Uh one of Perlman it's not a Perlman story, but one of his favorite stories is um he he loves um Brando. And he had worked with Marlon Brando on the island of Dr. Monroe. And he'd been so... This actually... I've got two stories. There was one he... he, he uh he was in the first scene that uh, that he had with Brando. He was so in awe to be there acting with Brando. And they were all just doing their read-through. And Ron was just watching what Brando was doing. And then Brand- no, one start- no one said anything for a while. The kind of dialogue ground to a halt. And then Brando just went... It's your line, asshole. And <laughs> <laughs> Perman thought, oh, God, that's so fucking embarrassing for the asshole just forgot his line and kind of was like, oh, so glad that wasn't me. And then Brando turned directly to him and said, hey, it's your fucking line, asshole. Oh, shit. And he realized it was him. But no, but the, the great, the great uh, Brando story that he had heard secondhand was that... Um, Brando was a guy that was working with Brando and a young aspiring actor and had uh, had um, been having, you know, kind of trouble breaking in and done a couple of like little bits and bobs. And But Brando hated talking about acting and never wanted to discuss the process or any of that stuff. You know, he just found it very distasteful, or icky to talk about. And uh, but this kid is dying to talk to him. And, and Brando knew that. And he said, uh, OK, you can ask one question. And the kid said, oh, thank you. I just, how do you know it's working? And Brando kind of smiled. He said, okay, well, I'm going to tell you, but, you know, don't, don't, you know, just, just listen to what I say and, and, you know, don't fucking ask me any more questions. <laughs> and he goes, okay, okay, tell me, tell me. And he goes, I checked my asshole. <laughs> and the kid was just perplexed. He said, I'm sorry. I know I, I wasn't going to ask any more questions, but I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And I was oh, fuck. Well, I just, I'm doing the scene, and, you know, if I just check my asshole. If it's relaxed, then I figure it's good. If it's tight, I figure it's fucked up. <laughs> that is so, unbelievable advice. Just check your asshole. Check your asshole. That might be the new way we sign off the podcast. <laughs> Normally we say enjoy your burrito. Which is a sort of a metaphor for like enjoy the present, but I feel like check your asshole is at a le- good way to end this podcast. At least for today. At least for today, Charlie check Hunnam. Your this has been an amazing chat. Sons of Anarchy, uh, Pacific Rim. Um, uh, thanks, man. I really, really fun hanging out with you. I really Thank appreciate you. it. Thanks uh, for coming pleasure. in on a Saturday and uh, check your asshole, guys. Check your asshole. <laughs> now leaving nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito.
This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Stamps.com. Go to Stamps.com, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Nerdist for a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and $55 of free postage. That's Stamps.com. Enter the promo code NERDIST. I feel like I was blindsided. Because it's a competition show. From the producers of Jury Duty and The Bachelor. We have scoured the earth for the 14 greatest reality contestants that were available during our production window. Comes a reality competition show about reality competition shows. Nobody has dared to find out who is the actual best at just being on a reality show. I'm your host, comedian Daniel Tosh. It's winner go home. Each episode, our contestants will face new challenges. They will test their strength and lack of life skills for a chance to win $200 million. $200,000. Prepare, because it's about to be ugly crying. Lots of fighting. Tasha, I have to defend myself. Celebrating 25 years of reality TV with your favorites. I have diarrhea. You cannot do this to me. What in gay hell have I got myself into? The GOAT, premiering on Freebie and Prime Video on May 9th. 